here's this morning's question. It depends on the kind of week you had. Is life brutal or is life beautiful? See, nobody wants to answer that question because it's not an easy question. I mean, I've struggled with that question. The older I get, the more I find myself asking myself that question. Some days, man, I I drive along, uh, I drive Route 24 from Long Valley to Mendham for work, and the sky is blue, and the mountains are now especially full of colors, and um, I think about how incredible my life is, how God has so blessed me, I mean, this incredible wife, and I've got four just awesome kids, um, healthy, and, and then I think about it. Just love, just the blessing of love and how I'm actually loved by, I mean, I, I know that I'm deeply loved by my wife and, and I've got this close family and my, I, I, great relationships with my kids and, and I, yeah, I have these days and I'm driving and I'm going, oh Lord, you're so good to me. Life is so good. And I remember back to like the special memories, you know, things that, that were in the past that just warmed my heart, you know, first steps and first dates and first jobs and, and first kisses and things like that. And I get excited about thinking about the future, too. Joan and I were sitting out at the fire last night, had our first fire pit of the season. We we're talking about the kids, how, how fun it is. That, like, we're launching these kids out now. It's really wild. It's like they're all suddenly leaving, and we're wondering wh- where Jesus is going to lead these kids. Like, what's he going to do with their lives? We're thinking about spending more time together. We're kind of excited that we still like each other. Um, you know, we're thinking about traveling and grandparenting. And on those days and on those drives to work, I think, oh, life is just beautiful. But there's other days. And I'm a pretty up guy, but, but every day, I'd be lying to tell you that every day I say, oh, life is so beautiful. There are other days, there are other times when life... Man, that, Maybe, maybe it hits me harder because not only am I involved in my, my own life, um, but, I, but as the, uh, being the pastor, I'm, I'm privileged to be involved in hundreds of other people's lives. And I've got to tell you, there are other days where life can just seem so cold and random and hard, unfair. And frankly, if I'm honest, sometimes it can just seem like purposeless. It happens in my own life, days when Joan and I are fighting or... So there's some distance in our relationship, and it just, it stinks, and it's bothering me. Or maybe the kids, you know, my kids, my kids have a really annoying habit of not doing what I tell them to do. Um, You know, I tell them to do certain things, to believe certain ways, and they don't listen to me all the time, and, and sometimes that really gets me down. Sometimes things aren't going the way I want them to at church. Sometimes people that I care about aren't doing as well as I, I hoped that w- I, they'd be. And then so, you know, I'll sit down on the couch and I'll flip on the 24-hour news channel and, and for 23 hours and 50 minutes, I, I mean, literally, I, I took note of it the other night. Just in a few minutes, I heard of wars, rumors of wars, orphans, bombings, killings, rapings, riots, and refugees all this week. And, and Courtney was in the kitchen the other day and she, she looked in, she goes, why do you listen to this? I love this. You, you guys know the actor Dennis Leary? He summed this up. Dennis Leary probably should not write greeting cards. But this is Dennis Leary's take on this. He said, quote, most people, think, most people think life sucks and then you die. Not me. I beg to differ. He said, I think life sucks and then you get cancer. And then your dog dies. Your wife leaves you. 
But the cancer goes into remission, so you get a new dog and you get remarried, but you owe $10 million in medical bills. So you work hard for 35 years and you pay it back, and then one day you have a massive stroke. You're, you don't know whether to laugh or cry at this, right? Your whole world, or excuse me, your whole right side is paralyzed. You got to limp along the streets. You got to speak out the left side of your mouth and drool. But you go into rehab and you again, you start to get the power to walk back and the power to talk. And then one day you step off a curve on 67th Street and bang, you get hit by a city bus and then you die. Maybe. So which is it? Because the truth of the human race, the one, the one shared experience across the globe in time it, that we all have is that it's both. Life is both good and bad. It is sweet and sour. It is crud and cupcakes. I mean, we want it to be great, but you live long enough and it, the world takes a bite. Author Glendon uh, Doyle Melton described our beautiful stories or describes our stories, excuse me, as both beautiful and brutal and refers to life as brutal. And it's true, right? You know, it's a brutal life. So trying to figure life out, trying to, to frame the human experience and, and answer the profound questions about life that echo across generations of hearts and souls, that's what we're going to try to do in this series called Wonder Life over the next four weeks here, starting today. And what we're really asking is, if you're not in a small group, you should get in one. But we're asking most of the small groups, would you take the fall to, to work through these concepts uh, that are in this journal? This is not so much a book as it is a journal. It's very creative. And the truths in here, he does a good job making them look fun, but they're deep, deep, profound stuff. And I've been wrestling with them uh, all week, and it's really been teaching me some stuff. I'll share with, that with you in a little bit. Um, this, thing's, this, this curriculum is, is written by Mike Foster. He did Freeway, if any of you ever worked through the Freeway material. But here's what we're going to talk about. For the next four weeks, in here, we're going to talk about Wonder Life. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. Steve's going to be out there after the service. We'll get you in a small group, and you can work through these principles. I think they could be life-changing for you. And now, and now here's, what's at the, here's what's at the bottom of this. Everybody that's ever lived has asked, I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know, but everybody that's ever lived has had and asked two essential questions about life. First question, who am I? And second question, why am I here? You ever had those nights where you just sit around and go, what's going on? Like, what's going on? How did I get here? The first one is a question of identity. Who, who am I? Like, who, who am I? And then the second one is a question of purpose. Is there one? These are our shared questions. Everybody that's ever lived has asked these questions. They're being asked by my high school freshman daughter, right, as she tries to, to, to fit into high school. I mean, am I cool enough to eat in the cafeteria or do I have to go to the library? They're being answered by a lot of my friends that are my age and you know, all of us thought that when you got to, to be our age and you got the house and the wife and the kids and the car and the retirement account, then I would, be, I would have the answer to these questions. But what a lot of us are, are figuring out over time is I got all of that stuff, and now I'm asking these questions more than I ever asked. I chased all that stuff, but I'm not really sure that I answered who I am. I'm not sure I even know who I am, and I'm not sure what I'm doing here because I'm pretty sure it wasn't to be a tax accountant. They're being asked by my 85-year-old father-in-law, 
as he decides if continuing with chemotherapy is worth it or not. Who am I? What am I doing here? There's all this craziness in life, how to control nature of it. Does it make any sense? And so you're going to gather, I hope you'll gather in your small groups to discuss it. We live in a unique time. We really do. This is especially true now, but I think you see it over the last hundred years or so, where, where our most precious possession, we've lost. And you know what the most precious thing we had was? Ourselves. It's like as a culture, as individuals at least, we, we live in a constant perpetual identity, identity crisis habitually reinventing ourselves, trying to follow the latest trends to fit in. Because at the end of the day, it's not just my high school freshman daughter that's wondering if she's cool enough to fit in. It's her 40-something her father. <laughs> All right, I said it. <laughs> Here's a question for you. Let me ask you this. Um, who are you? I mean, are, are we our titles? Are we our online tribes? Are we our affiliations? You know, like this week I'm going to be hipster pastor, and next week I'm going to be gangster pastor. Um, are we our relationship status on Facebook? Are we just like a collection of society's toxic labels? Am I a pastor of a, a church in Menorum, or am I a private equity investor uh, in a bank? I mean, are, are, are those who I am? It does it depend on who, I, who asks? I mean, am, am I a father? Am I a good father? Am I, am I a good husband? And who gets to define the answer for you? Who do you allow to define the answer for you? These are pr profound questions. There's a, there's a huge premise, as I've been wrestling with myself, asking myself this question, who am I? By the way, like, pastors aren't immune to this stuff. If you watch church material, I mean, it's so funny. You know, like 10 years ago, somebody, I don't know who makes the call, but somebody made the call that, like, you got to be a cool pastor, so, like, suddenly all the pastors are wearing skinny jeans and those big horn glasses, you know, the big, have you seen that, Right. Um, and, and now, you know, there's a new thing. If you want to be a cool pastor, you got to get a tattoo. I'm trying to explain this to Joan. She's not buying it, but, <laughs> but we're, none of us are immune from this stuff. Like, who, who am I? And who gets to define for me who I am? What, what I'm starting to discover just looking at myself is that many of us have allowed other people or the culture we live in to define who we are. And when we allow that to happen, when we start chasing their dreams for us or their approval, we never wind up being comfortable with who we are, who we were created to be, because we're just constantly seeking their approval, chasing after their definition of success or goodness or wholeness, and it becomes this exercise in chasing the wind. It's like uh, my dog Moose chasing his tail. It, this is what we look like. I'm going to show you what I mean. I'm just going to give you one example. We're going to start uh, with the ladies, the more intelligent crowd in the room, right? I know who butters the bread in this church, so we're going to start with the more intelligent crowd. Let me ask you a profound question now. Don't, okay, don't blow any spiritual smoke, okay? I know the spiritual answer, okay? I'm a pastor, for heaven's sake. Don't give me the spiritual answer. I just want you to have a conversation with your soul now, okay? Don't say it out loud. Just a conversation with your soul. Honest reaction. Here's the question. You ready? You ready? Are you beautiful? 
Are you beautiful? It's a simple identity question. Part of who am I? I mean, am I attractive? Am I beautiful? See, here's what I want to show you. Here's what happens when we allow others to, 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 to teach us our identity. This, this answer changes violently, and it swings dramatically. You know, if you lived in the turn of the 20th century, you might answer the, the question one way. I'm going to show you a picture. Um, this is a picture of what defined beauty around the year 1910. It's a picture of a woman that was referred to as a Gibson girl. Now, this is a real-life human being, believe it or not. The Gibson girl was the creation of an illustrator, a man, shocking, it was a picture of a woman, that, and he came up with it, and he said, this is the Gibson girl. And this woman, this portrait, defined beauty for the first decade of this century. Do you know how he came up with this idea of this is what beauty is? He said what he did was he went around everywhere and amalgamated things that he thought were beautiful that he found attractive in women. And so what he did was then he began to get models and, and make the models look like what he thought was going to be the standard of beauty. And it became the iconic illustration in the early 1900s of what all American girls should look like. And, and, and this idea of femininity, it becomes depicted as slender and tall, albeit with a voluptuous bust and wide hips, the incongruous, the exaggerated look. How is it achieved? These women were corseted to the point that it would literally sometimes deform their bodies and damage their internal organs. And this composite took off in the 1900s, all to be beautiful. Because they could look in the mirror and go, I'm trying to answer the question. I think, I think as defined by this guy, I'm, I'm beautiful. But it doesn't end there, right? In the 1920s, they come uh, roaring along, the roaring 20s, and you have the flappers. The flapper kind of thing takes over. I don't know, they called, they called this look the flapper look. Flappers were known for their bobbed hair, their shortened dresses, and flappers in the 20s. See, it's not just the way we look. We also want to copy other people's behavior. And so flappers decided that they were going to engage in scandalous things for women, like smoking in public and driving cars. Flappers rarely wore corsets, and they often showed their ankles or knees. But their appearance was one of boyishness and androgynous youth with minimal breast appearance, a straight figure without any corseting and short hair. See, are you beautiful? Well, that, that seems to be what, what we aspire to until Mae West shows up on the scene. Some of you know Mae West in the 30s, right? And Mae West, this is literally her quote. She tells the women of her culture, you need to start cultivating your curves. She couldn't have been more different from the flappers, and suddenly she's emphasizing her waist and her hips, and she's flaunting with, with figure-fitting clothing. And if you know the story, Mae West gives birth to all of the sex symbols and the beauty queens of the 50s, no better personified than by Marilyn Monroe. And now everybody needs to get curvy again because this is beautiful. And we just keep asking the culture, oh, am I beautiful? Elizabeth Hurley, and looking at Marilyn Monroe, you know the supermodel Elizabeth Hurley? Elizabeth Hurley, quote, I always thought Marilyn Monroe looked fabulous. 
But I'd kill myself if I was that fat. That's, can, do you feel that? I'd kill myself if I was that fat. I went to see her clothes in an exhibition, and I wanted to take a tape measure and measure what her hips, her, her hips were. She was very big. I see you guys are probably catching on at this point, right? Because the 60s come along, right? And with the 60s comes high fashion model Twiggy. And Twiggy becomes famous for a small frame. And again, back to the androgynous look. And then the 70s roll in. Farrah Fawcett, I had the poster on my wall. Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> She's not skinny. But the new look is you need to be athletic and toned. That's what makes a woman beautiful. And it's no coincidence that in the 1970s, suddenly there is an incredible rise of anorexia that starts killing our daughters. Because they're all looking for an answer to a question, am I beautiful? It rolls on. You can fast forward to the 90s. Athletic, then toned. Oh, that's so old. Heroin chic. That's what we're looking for. Here's Kate Moss. Kate Moss... Uh, in the 1990s, the average American woman had a body mass index of 27. Kate Moss's in this picture was around 16, and anorexia explodes across our culture. Am I beautiful? Today, I tried very hard to, to get you guys a picture of, of Kim Kardashian or, or Nicki Minaj because you, you kind of I couldn't find one that I could show you. Um, <laughs> I literally looked for a long time, and then I had to erase my browser history in case Joan came home. <laughs> Right? But, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that being called a, a fat you-know-what in the behind was, not, uh, was an insult. And now it's like, oh, no, no, no. There, we're recorseting ourselves. And, I, and when I go to the gym, there's a line of high school girls waiting to do squats. <laughs> and, you know, they're all trying to answer one question. Am I beautiful? Who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? Who are you allowing to define your identity for you? This is just one example. Guys, you could go online and look at what, what defines uh, men. There's the same thing about men's bodies on there, right? And in the 80s, you had like the beefed up guy, but in the 90s, it was all about abs. Guys, who gets to decide if you're a success or a failure? Who decides? Who's defining what, what you are? Are you strong enough, big enough, cut enough? And what you start to realize as I was working on this is the whole thing's a sham. We're all chasing the wind, trying to create an identity for ourselves. If one of the profound questions of all eternity is who am I, we're not going to the right place to figure out the answer. And, and at the end of the day, if we don't know who we are, how in the heck are we ever going to know what we're doing here? How, if I can't define who I am, how would I have any idea of what my purpose in life is? The author does a great job on this. He, he takes all the kind of cultural soup and he pulls it apart and he says, look, in terms of your purpose in life, are you supposed to fake it till you make it? Or are you supposed to work hard and play by the rules? Which one is it? Should you be, quote, all that you can be? Or should you, quote, work for a cause and not for applause? Which, what's your purpose? Are you supposed to just do it? Or are you supposed to wish upon a star? You see, nobody knows. Now, there's no shortage of people who are going to try to give you an answer. 
I mean, billions of dollars is spent trying to give you an answer. Books and seminars and conferences and motivational speakers, all telling you there's a cookie-cutter answer to this. It's a very easy question. Just read this book, do this program, listen to this speaker. But if you've ever tried to do this, if you've gone down these roads, you realize they're all dead ends, and that's why you wind up back at the bookstore, and there's a new book in the window telling you how to define who you are or what your purpose in life is. Nobody can do that for you because it's not a cookie-cutter answer. You're as unique as an individual as there ever has been made, and I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute. What our goal here is over these four weeks, and in your small groups, that you, hopefully you'll work through this with others, that you'll, you'll, you'll work through this journal, is to help you frame answers, because they're unique answers to you about who you are and what you're doing. Who gets to decide that for you? Wonder Life does it through the study of Psalm 139. Pull some things out of King David's life. So as we get started, I, I want to read Psalm 139. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, King David was king of Israel. He was the guy that shot Goliath, right? Um, he, he was the king of Israel, and his life and his journey are detailed in the books of the Old Testament, in several of them. But what many of you might not know is that we probably know more about King David's heart and his feelings and his emotions than any other character in the Bible, because he essentially left his journal behind. It's in a book called Psalms. It captures so much of what he's wrestling with. King David was like you and I. He's a complex guy. I'm like an onion, man. Like, I just wish I was simple. Like, I have a little joke I tell Jonah all the time. Jonah, I'm just a simple man. But I'm not. I mean, I, would long, I, I just wish I could be everything you see right up here is everything there is, but that's not true. Like, there's layers and there's things that need to be peeled back and... And David is wrestling with that. Many of you know David was, was a man after God's own par, heart, a great leader for Israel, and he also committed adultery and was a murderer of the woman's husband. Who is he? Who gets to define him? Is he a champion of Israel or is he a murderer and adulterer? And so what I want you to do as we read this together is I want you to hear the voice of somebody that's just like you, wrestling through this. Who am I? Who am I and what am I doing here? So in honor of God's word, in honor of those who have died to get it to us today, can I get you up out of your seats? Just stand in reverence for a moment. And then we're going to read this together. You know what that means? That means we're going to read it together. <laughs> so I don't look silly up here. I'm going to ask you to read it, and I'm going to ask you to ponder the mind of King David, wrestling with these two questions. Who am I, and what am I doing here? Let's do it. Oh, Lord, you have examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and you follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me, 
and the light around me to become night. But even in darkness, I cannot hide from you. To you, the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You can't hide from God. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you're still with me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Grab a seat. King David, who am I? What am I doing here? Lord, he, he lays out, this, this material does a wonderful job pulling kind of four trail markers for answering the question for you. I'm going to give you the week one trail marker. So if you're in a small group, you should be taking notes on this stuff so you can talk about it in your small group. But first thing we're going to look at is something that King David came to understand in verse 14. He says this. He says, God, thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. The NIV says it this way. King David says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now the word fearfully here. That word, in, in, in its original, um, in its origin, is ref reflects honor and respect. You have been made, listen to me, church, you as an individual have been created and made with honor and respect. Now, I need you to not hear this with just your ears. I need you to let the truth of this into your soul. Listen to me. You have a creator. And he made you, 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 with honor and respect. When David uses the word, when he says, I, I'm wonderfully created, that's what we're calling this series, and this book is entitled Wonder Life, he's saying you're unique, that there is no one like you. You are a one of a kind. Listen to this. You want to see sin at work in our lives? The scripture says over and over, King David comes to this realization, you are a one of a, in a, there's no one like you, you're one of a kind. God made you with intent, he made you just the way he wanted to. There's nothing, no one ever through all of millennia that is just like you, to which I ask a pretty profound question, that why do most of us spend our entire lives trying to be somebody else? There's the root of sin. I've been given a great gift but I think I want to look like Kim Kardashian. Well, I don't want to look like Kim Kardashian, but... 
We spend our whole lives trying to be somebody else. See, this, this is your story. Can I give you your story according to the scriptures? The scriptures would tell you at just the right time, a time of God's own anointing, a, a time of his own appointing. He brought just the right two people together, not by accident, but through his amazing providence, and he created and designed you. Did you hear King David talking about how this was not an accident, how this happened long before, how he knew everything about you? You were designed. You are not a mass-produced car. You're not, like a, you're not like a Ford Escape. Like you were individually designed the way you look, your smile, your hair, my bald spot, designed by God to look the way you look. But it's not just your looks. I mean, God made you. He, the, what makes you laugh, he, 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 he made you like that. A silly giggle you have when something strikes you funny, a gift of God to you. Your outgoing nature, your quiet demeanor, every little thing about you was purposeful. You're unique. And why did he do this? Because it answers the second question. Paul answers it in a book he wrote to a church in Ephesus called Ephesians. In chapter 2 he says this. He goes, we are God's masterpiece. And he created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God is the author of the story you're living. And your story is unique. And your story matters. And he has plans for you. Church, God, God has been preparing you and this world for you for a very long time. And if you think your story doesn't matter, you're missing the whole thing. See, that's the first trail marker. In order to answer the great questions about identity and purpose, you have to believe that your story matters. I mean, if you just think you're a mass-produced product, you're one of a billion, nobody cares. It's not true. God is the author and the creator of you, and he made you for your story. Your story matters, even if you don't like it. You might go, I, you know, I'm just a dock worker. I'm just, I, I just, uh, you know, I'm just an accountant. My story is not all that great. Your story matters. Even the messy parts. There's a question in Wonder Life, and he puts out a chart. And he says, what would you charge, what, what would you charge for your life story? What's your life story worth? And the truth is that most people go, nothing great about my story. Or maybe worse, they go, my story is not good. And they charge very little. To which I, I ask you this, what's your story worth to God? Because apparently it was worth enough to send his son to die for. If you want to understand who you are and what you're doing here, the first thing you have to embrace, embrace deeply is that your story matters. We discount our stories. If there were a book, we'd rip pages out of them and throw them away because we think about all the screw-ups the relationships, the things we did that we shouldn't have done, the words we said we shouldn't have spoken, the punch we threw, the car we hit, the addiction we succumbed to. And we say, we look at that, and so we start to think, well, our story has bad chapters in it. Maybe it's got a lot of bad chapters in it, and shame enters the picture. Here's the truth. Your story Every bit of it, even the messy parts, it matters tremendously to God. 
Somebody said this. It's in the book. Your strengths will impress your strengths will impress people, but it's your weaknesses, it's your story, your brokenness, and your healing that will influence people. There is, I know a lot of times in the church, you know, I keep telling people, we have a four-step discipleship process here. It's not really steps, it's kind of four things we got to focus on, and the first one is heart. And I talk to people about this, and there's a lot of people in the church that go, oh, I don't want to look at my heart, I just want to read the Bible. Well, the Bible you're reading spends a lot of time saying you need to examine your heart. You need to take a look at it because there's something logged in all of our hearts. None of us get out of here unhurt, unchanged. You wouldn't be who you are if you hadn't stumbled and fallen or gotten hurt or maybe, maybe even abused. We, you get no choice on if the past impacts you. Listen to me. The past, the past impacts you. You can keep saying it doesn't, but you're kidding yourself. Not every chapter in John's book is perfect. But what we actually do get to choose is what you do with those things. The pain and the hurts and the screw-ups and the sorrows. Your unique joy, your unique pain. And are you willing to take them and trust that God would use them, that they can be redeemed and used for these good works he's prepared you to do with them? Or are you just going to bury them and go, I don't want to look at, my, I don't look at myself? Jesus gets this, which is no surprise. He explains something to his disciples that I wish the church would get, that I wish we, we would get at deeper levels. In John 16, Jesus says to his followers, I've told you all this so that you may have peace. This is what we're looking for, right? If I just, oh, if I, just ha if I was better looking, I'd feel better about myself and I'd have peace. Oh, if I had a little more money, then I wouldn't be worried about things, then I'd have peace. Oh, if my relationships were better over here, if I hadn't slept with that guy, if I hadn't hit that person, oh, then I, I, I would have peace. Jesus says, I'm telling you this so that you will have peace in me. These other things aren't going to do that. There's peace in me. But then he goes on. He says, he goes here on earth, you're going to have many trials and sorrows. And Jesus is not saying you're going to have a couple bad days. Jesus is saying, in this world, you're going to have like deep hurt, troubling times. My sister-in-law, um, she went to uh, one, of, one of the Christian camps in, in New York one day. Some of you know this story. And, and she was about 12 years old, and she was gone, uh, and they couldn't find her. And they actually found her, um, I think, uh, maybe less than a day later, but it was in some guy's trunk. That hurts. Now, back in the day, it was the old, nobody says anything about this. Everything will be Okay. See, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But then he says, take heart. I've overcome the world. Don't lose hope. I'm bigger than all of this. And so the truth is we have to, we have to hold these two things in tension. You know people who build their life off the trials and sorrows part of Jesus' words, right? You know people like this. Oh, you know, it's the guy from before. Life sucks and then you die. Why can't anything ever be easy? Oh, I just know I'm going to get a bad report from the doctor. Do you have somebody like this that you call and you're like, well, I got to call. I got to check on them. But, you know, the room like brightens when they walk out of it. If you build life around that, just half of that verse, oh, life is going to be terrible. It's going to be hard. It's going to destroy you. But here's what the church has done. Here's what happened to my sister-in-law. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus, he's overcome the world. So you don't need to worry about any of those difficulties. In fact, if you follow Jesus, you're not going, nobody's going to kidnap you. 
No, nobody's going to abuse you. Your children are always going to love you. You'll never get cancer. Your marriage will be great. Because that's not true either. Jesus is saying, in this world, I know the world. It's a fallen place. It's a hard place. You're going to have trouble. But if you will push into me, I was sharing with a friend the other day, everybody thinks that God's greatest desire is, is to give them peace, and it is, but we think that means that he's going to give us everything we want, and then we'll be at peace. In Philippians, Paul says it this way. He says, look, don't be anxious about anything. In every situation, through prayer and through petition, with being thankful, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He never says he's going to give you everything you're asking for. What he says is in the midst of the trials and sorrows, if you will press into me, if you will connect to the only, if you will reconnect your soul to the only source of life, peace will flow through you. There's nothing anyone can do to you anymore. There's a quote by an author named Brendan Manning. He said, anybody that God uses significantly is almost always deeply wounded. And if you read the Bible at all, you know this is true, right? The Bible is about broken people and God's choice to love them anyway. It's the story of David. He, he's a man after God's own heart. He's an unbelievable leader, but he cheats and murders. Have you read, anybody know the story of Noah? There's other components to the story of Noah that don't have to do with the ark. I can't read them in church. Noah's a broken guy. Peter, Petros, the rock upon which Jesus has built his church, he takes off and cowers. Paul writes most of the New Testament, also the first person to kill a Christian because he thought it was a, you know, a horrible sect. See, these are our stories. They're not perfect stories, but the stories matter. Your story matters. I, I love this. The author points this out. In 2 Corinthians, there's this verse. It says, God says, for who God said, let there be light in the darkness. He's made light shine in our hearts so we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And he says, so now we have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. I'm going to stop it there. We ourselves are like fragile clay jars. What happens to fragile clay jars, folks? What happens? They break. And what happens when a fragile clay jar breaks and there's incredible radiance and light in it? What happens? The light shines out to everybody around. This is why your story matters. This is why your brokenness matters. Romans, Paul, Paul says it to the Romans like this. I love this, the message version. I usually don't love the message, but I love this, the way he puts it. Paul, Paul says this is what God does. He goes, I'll call nobodies and I'll make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and I'll make them be loved. In a place where they once yelled out, you're nobody, they're going to start calling you God's living children. Your, star, your stories, the good parts, the bad parts, they all matter. God uses imperfect people to do his will. We're talking about identity. i got to own my story. I don't have to be like anybody else. I'm unique. And we're talking about purpose. God always uses imperfect people to do his will and for his purposes. Do you know why God always uses imperfect people to do his will? Because he has no choice. He has no choice. Now, I am far from perfect. I have a habit, I'm getting better, of saying inappropriate things at wrong times. <laughs> Lately, I, Jesus has been teaching me to take every thought captive, but, but I wasn't always this wise. Um, 
because I, I like to be, you know, the gregarious fun John. And uh, I remember, I'll give you a story. I was back at the bank in my financial career, and it was a training class of 25 of us, and there was a guy in the class named Pete. Pete was a big football player, Division I guy. And uh, Pete was um, follically challenged, for lack of a better word, for a, for a very young man, right? And it was kind of strange, because all of us were 20 and had hair, and Pete, Pete didn't have much hair. Didn't think much of it. Pete left the training class and went to another bank. And uh, 550 Broad Street, Newark, New Jersey, big marble, you know, the old bank thing, big marble hallway and foyer. Now, I haven't seen Pete in several years. Suddenly, I see Pete. It turns out he came back to the bank, and he's working for the bank. But I'm looking at him, and I notice that he looks different. And so I don't know what to say, but I want to be witty, so I yell out. Uh, I realize, oh, he changed his hairstyle. So I yell out, hey, Pete, new hair. And I come to find out that he had literally just gotten hair implants, and he literally had new hair. Um, and I yelled it out to everybody in this marble foyer, and they all turn and look at this guy who you can see each individual hair thing that had been put in his head. And a lot of this, you know, this, this, uh, this saying stupid things. I did another one one time. There was a kid that worked for me. His name was Rob. And I was always trying to be the funny guy and the nice guy. And Rob had to come in and ask me for a day off. So he comes in. He goes, John, I, I need to go to the doctor next Tuesday. Can I take the day off? And I thought about using the, the, um, you know, the tired old line about, oh, you know, good. Maybe he can help you with that ugliness problem. But I didn't think that was original enough for John Eisman. Anybody could come up with that one. So I scoured my mind quickly and just tried to say something funny. And I said, good, maybe he can help you with all of that ugly scarring. And he looked at me and he said, I hope so. And he walked out. And you know, you ever feel like all of a sudden you get hot? Like you're like, I go over to the guy that works next to me, that's the other manager. And I said, hey, this just happened. And he goes, he was in a horrible accident. His body's covered in scars. See, I tell you that story because, A, I'm not perfect and I do stupid things, but B, there's something about scars. I mean, Rob had them all covered up, right? It was indicative that there had been some hurt there, that something had happened to him. But he was hiding them. And we do that all the time as part of our stories. We push them down. We don't show anybody. We have physical ones, but more likely we all have emotional ones. And we've learned from our earliest times, you don't tell anybody about this. Don't share it. Just keep it quiet. It's a great, as I was doing the research on this, I heard one guy giving a talk about the concept. And he had this brilliant uh, analogy about it or allegory about it. He talked about Jesus walking into the upper room after he had been crucified. The disciples are on the run. They're kind of hiding. They don't know what to do. And in comes Jesus to them. And if you remember, he walks into the room and he needs to do something. He needs to show his identity. And in order to prove his identity to his followers, what does he show them? What? In order to show his identity, he showed them his scars. This is who he is. Scars are there because there was a wound and something got hurt, but when Jesus shows us scars, he does it to prove his identity. But what if there's other things going on? And what if he's saying to them and to us, look, suffering is part of the story. It's part of the human condition. It makes you who you are. Jesus Christ, perfect, blameless, sinless, and the world took a nick out of him too. 
The earth scars you, but then Jesus says he shows them something else. He doesn't show them an open wound. He shows that he's healed. The wounds were real, but they don't hurt anymore. I've been healed. And this is what God is calling you and I in our stories to do. To take these stories out to a hurting world and to tell them, this is who I am. My story matters. What happened to me, I'm not proud of it. What I did, I wish I hadn't. But it's part of my story. And I'm going to show it to the world because I want them to understand that Jesus heals. And I survived. Your story, your wounds, your scars, when you show yourself to others in this way, this is how God brings purpose to your past and healing to so many others. I had a friend come up to me at the first service and says, I just gave my testimony. I was so nervous to do it. I, I didn't want to do it, but I was asked to do it. I did it in front of a large group of women and I was sharing about the abuse in my past. And, and, when, and when it was over, I felt this great relief for sharing some of the stuff that I had never shared, but then I had all these people come up with me crying because her story mattered. And it touched somebody very deeply. Ben, come on up here. The story you are involved in is unique. It matters. The whole story isn't about you. Everything doesn't revolve around you. It's not your story. The whole thing's not your story, but you have a part of a bigger story. And God is looking for people that are willing to take the scars of this life to show the healing in their story and to take it out to a world that's so desperately needs it. And if you will do this, if you will do this, you'll begin to understand I no longer need to chase after what other people say I am. Pastor John doesn't need to get a tattoo. Maybe I can be a little more comfortable with the way I look, or what my job is, or what happened to me. And when you start to understand who you are and you start to embrace every part of your story, I'm promising you that God is going to meet you there and he is going to show you the purpose of this for a hurting world. And so, Lord, come and do this in us as we work through these things so that we would not allow others to define us, Lord God, that we wouldn't flip back and forth based on other people's desires for us, but that we would hear the voice of our Father in heaven who calls us and gives us a name and a purpose. In Jesus' name we pray.